As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm Justin Briley, Apologetics and Theology Editor for Premier Unbelievable. And this is Unapologetic, helping you grow in confidence in thinking through and sharing your Christian faith. And today I'm catching up with archaeologist Scott Stripling. Earlier in the year, his team announced a very exciting find at one of their digs in Israel, a so-called cursed tablet that appears to confirm the historical authenticity of parts of the Old Testament. We're going to talk about this new find and what it means for the ongoing debate over the historicity of the Old Testament. And there's a link to Scott from the show notes today. If you enjoy these conversations, why not check out all our other great podcasts and resources at premierunbelievable.com. You can even support us to help get more of these conversations out to more skeptics and believers. The links to give are with today's show too. Well, Scott Stripling is Provost of the Bible Seminary in Katie, Houston, and Director of Excavations for Biblical Research at various sites in Israel. And Scott recently announced the discovery of what is potentially a groundbreaking artefact, a cursed tablet in early Hebrew uh, that mentions the name of Yahweh. Uh, This could revolutionise exactly when we say that the Bible was written, the earliest documents of the Old Testament. Um, But we're going to be talking all about it and this uh, exciting discovery. Uh, Scott, welcome along to the show. Um, t- tell us firstly about um, uh, the nature of the work that you undertake, because you, you're, you've been doing archaeology for a long time now, and, and how specifically you came across this particular item. Well, hi, Justin. Thanks for having me on your show. I'm excited to connect with your listeners and viewers. Uh, my research focus has been on the period of the conquest. Uh, so Israelites, according to the Bible, exit from, from Egypt. They wander. They then enter the land. And so um, I've always focused on these conquest sites, primarily in the highlands uh, of Israel, from, say, Hebron in the south to Shechem in the north. I've excavated at several of these sites. The project that we did at Mount Ival was because, again, of my interest in conquest sites, because after I, Joshua 8, the Israelites went north in renewed covenant at uh, ancient Shechem with Gerizim on one side and Ival on the other That's what led us there through the wet sifting project. Uh, I took the old dump piles, discard piles of Adam Zertal from the 1980s and wet sifted about 30% of them. We recovered many things, but the one that is of most interest is the small lead, folded lead curse tablet, what we would call a defixio. We knew typologically what it was immediately. The question was, would we be able to recover text? 
we were ultimately able to do that through tomographic scanning at the University of Prague. And uh, now we have those letters on the inside. And this is the announcement that we made this week. Uh, what, what 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 were you thinking when it first sort of became apparent that you got something pretty special in your hands here? It was uh, really mind boggling because uh, on site, as soon as I saw it, I knew what it was. I knew that it was a cursed tablet. And so here we have a, the biblical account telling us that. And of course, most people, Adam Zarthala, believe that this was an altar, Joshua's altar of Joshua 830. So it was not any dump pile. It was a dump pile from what was believed to be Joshua's altar, where the Bible says there was a, a cursing ceremony. And that seems odd to the Western viewer today, but blessings and curses counterbalanced each other concomitantly uh, in, in covenants in the late Bronze Age. So when I saw it, I, I knew that it was huge. And I remember day one telling our team, even if we never can recover text, because at the time I did not think we could penetrate lead. Um, I knew some metals could be penetrated, but I wasn't sure we could penetrate lead. But even if we couldn't, I said, at the very least, we'll be able to say that this is a curse tablet that either someone or some titular head placed on this altar, uh, acknowledging that it was Joshua's altar. It was just a bonus that we were actually able to recover text. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is very significant because what what up till now have been the kind of earliest forms of Hebrew writing that we've been able to confidently say we have from from archaeology? We have the silver scrolls from Ketef Hinnom uh, that date to the seventh century. It's the priestly blessing of number six. So there you have, you know, portion of the Torah. And um, it's actually a palimpsest. So underneath it, there was earlier writing from another text from the Torah also. Um, we also have a pithos from Kuntilet Azrud in the Sinai. It's called Pithos B that also has a portion of the priestly blessing and also a portion of Exodus. And that's a century old, uh, 8th century. So uh, to this point, to my knowledge, those are the old, earliest portions of scripture that we had written. And they survived because they were on clay uh, or, or inscribed on silver. The, the paper scrolls will not survive unless they're in a totally humidity-free environment, like down by the Dead Sea or down in Egypt. And in the highlands where I'm working, it's, it's a wet environment. And so up to this point, had scholarship been relatively skeptical that Hebrew writing, if this sort, existed earlier than those kinds of dates? Scholars have been split on this. Um, there are those from a, a more liberal mindset or camp that the in their mind, I guess I would say the Bible is guilty until proven innocent. And since we did not have manuscripts from those early periods, they had spun all kinds of theories um, and made all kinds of assumptions, by the way, that there was no literacy that existed at the time of Moses, at the time of Joshua, um, at the beginning of, the say, the late Bronze Age uh, 2B period and that there was no alphabetic script with which they could have written. So even if Moses were literate, which the Bible says that he was, even if he were literate with Middle Egyptian, how could he have written the biblical text? It would have taken a library with 700 hieroglyphic symbols, for example, to do that. But now we know that in this proto-alphabetic script that there were 22 letters and the ability to write in a very small space what we now know as the, the Torah, the Pentateuch. And, and this particular item then goes back as far as you're concerned up to about 3,200 years ago, which puts it in the time of Moses and Joshua and so on. 
Well, it's it could be even older. So it's it could be anywhere from 3,200 to 3,400 years. At this point, we're being careful and leaving that window open. Um, the earliest writing that we have right now that's been at least widely accepted in the scholarly world would be the Kaiafa Ostrakhan, and that dates to about 1,000. So at the very least, we're predating that by 200 years, but it could be by as much as 400 years. And uh, by the time we you know, we're double checking and triple checking and dotting every I and crossing every T in our research so that when we do do release it, we can say we think the weight of evidence points this way and here's all the good data and then scholars can have at it. What, what I think, what I said at the press conference, Justin, was that um, scholars will have other readings of this, I'm sure, because it's not standardized in this early time period. It can be read right to left or horizontally or vertically. So there's, there are different ways to read it. We've grappled with it for months, and this is how the best that we can understand it. But no scholar is going to be able to debate that it's a late Bronze II text, okay? So the age of the text is, is 100% certain. The reading others may grapple with, we will present what we think the most likely reading is. Just, I have heard some people questioning the, sort of sourcing of this um it came from one of these dumps from these spoils and some people have questioned whether you have a sort of chain of custody in that sense knowing that it's definitely part of the original site that it goes back to the altar that was uncovered originally in this area and so on could it have been in some sense discarded from somewhere else or found its way into this this pile what 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 makes you confident that you really are dealing with something from that particular period I appreciate healthy skepticism. I really do. But if anyone knows this site, no, it's not possible. It is the most isolated site you could ever have. And there are only two archaeological options. I mean, Adam Zertal excavated a small two by two meter round altar at the perfect geometric center of a later rectangular altar that was nine by seven meters built to protect and venerate that earlier uh, altar. It's that smaller earlier altar that I believe dates to Joshua's time. So there are only two archaeological options. He only had two, two strata. There was a late bronze uh, 2B strata and there was a, an Iron Age 1A strata. So that's it. So, you know, it, to it, say that yeah. it has no, no context, there's only two options. And okay. even, even if it were the later option uh, and the dump pile is what, 20, let's see in meters, uh, 20 meters, you know, from, from the altar. Uh, so even at the, the later end, it would still be older than any Hebrew text that we have today. Now, now, many critical scholars of the Old Testament have essentially carried the view and, you know, it's been widely taught in academia that, that lots of the stories from the time of um, Moses, uh, the Exodus, Deuteronomy, uh, uh, Joshua and so on are essentially later kind of creations Um possibly post-exilic uh, sort of time when these stories kind of were actually written down and so on. What now, obviously there, there are those who, you know, just don't agree with that and say, no, they, they believe that these stories were written a lot earlier than that, that they may go back to Moses himself and so on. What, what, how does this particular find play into how we weigh the, the evidence on that scale? Well, it plays in hugely. Um, the proponents of the documentary hypothesis have a big problem here because when they have said that you have a JEDB structure and that the Jehovah source is different from the Elohim source and they're hundreds of years apart, in our inscription, we have El right next to, to Yahweh. 
So they're the two names of God that are supposedly centuries apart at the same time period. So that's a big problem for proponents of the documentary hypothesis. But Justin, let me just point out that for those who would say that the text of scripture, whether it's the, the Pentateuch, the Hexateuch, or the entire Hebrew Bible, that it's composed or redacted in the time of the Persian period, Josiah, or a little bit later in the Hellenistic period, the two examples I just cited you earlier make that impossible. We have the priestly blessing of number 6-4 on a silver scroll securely dated to the 7th century. So that, and then the, the pithos uh, from Punti de la Shrut is even older. So even those things make that not a plausible uh, argument. I think many times these scholarly ideas get out there, they get entrenched. And as new archaeological evidence has come to light, it hasn't dislodged those ideas. So it's my hope that this finding will dislodge those and, you know, enter into an enter into a um, assertive arena of ideas. Mm. Now, it's it's the form of the writing, but also the specifics of what is said. Um, now, it, 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 at one level, it, it's not exactly, your, you know, your bumper sticker encouragement kind of Christian <laughs> sort of thing, this, right. this curse tablet. So just tell us exactly what how you read the words on it, but why these words are so significant in terms of locating it in the specific area you found it. And obviously in the context of what we read in our Old Testament. I, I never thought I would be so excited about a curse, um, but um, this is uh, this is important because the way you made covenant in the late Bronze Age was point four of the covenant was an affirmation of blessings and curses. These are the positive things that will happen to me if I keep covenant. These are the negative consequences that will occur to me mm. if I don't. So our reading is this right now on the inside alone. We have text on the outside as well, incidentally, that we'll we'll be releasing. But on the inside, it says, cursed, 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 Hebrew arur, cursed, 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 cursed by the God Yahweh. Three letters, yod hevav, not the tetragrammaton. And again, you don't have it standardized at the early time period, but in the Bible itself, in the, whether it's the, the Masoretic text or uh, you, you have the alternate spellings too, two letters, three letters, and four letters. So here we have a three-letter spelling. Cursed, 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 cursed by the God Yahweh. Cursed, you will surely die. You will surely die cursed. Cursed, cursed, cursed by the God Yahweh. So it is a literary structure. It's a chiastic parallelism. So the author of this was not some hack. I mean, you know, it's actually a literary construction, like the in the Psalms. You know, sometimes you'll read this this chiastic uh, form. In my view, at this point, the best that I understand it, I would say that this is a self-imprecatory curse, that the Israelite nation is binding themselves uh, to the terms of the covenant, and then they're leaving it on the altar. And the point is that even if you're guilty of breaking the law and, and these curses come upon you, you can expiate them by coming to the altars. It's through sacrifice that I'm not held accountable. So if I own up to my actions... Um, and accept that I'm guilty, then I have forgiveness. And those curses are not upon me. Those curses are only for those who would not own up to their, to their actions. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. 
it's a very exciting find potentially um and and i wanted to, to talk just briefly before we finish about sort of how this could potentially change the landscape of um biblical studies some some people have questioned you talking about it to people like me and many others uh, in advance of it going undergoing strict peer review and, and everything else and we're hoping to bring you back on the show at some point in the future when it has gone through that process maybe to have a conversation with with someone who takes sure. a more liberal or um, skeptical viewer uh, you know a, a Finkelstein or someone else but um what why have you decided to kind of talk so publicly about this before it's undergone that process Scott? I think it's funny how the the uh, certain members of the academy, the elite, think that they can control how information is is disseminated and studied. It's my finding. I can announce it any way that I want, <laughs> quite frankly. And um, it is in the process of peer review. I have a collaborative team of scientists and epigraphers, paleographers who are working with me. Um, we've been working for many months. Uh, we thought that in light of the potential risk of academic piracy that exists, of our ideas being stolen. And this happens constantly just this last week. Uh, emails get hacked. And I mean, quite frankly, we mm-hmm. communicate with emails and mm-hmm. things like this. Those those get hacked and that potential existed. And then somebody steals your, your, your academic stuff. You know, you can't publish it. We wanted to just, and there's this is only a fraction of it. We wanted sure. to kind of get that out there. So that couldn't happen. Number two, there was bad information that was floating around. You know, there were reports that, you know, one of the names of one of the prophets was on there and just mm. various pieces of bad information. Who knows where they where that came from that was floating around. So um, that's why we went ahead and made this, this announcement of what we were confident about at this point. We hope to, by the end of the summer, have our academic paper ready to release, um, having already gone through the peer review process and then uh, be released. And I'll just warn you and everybody else that it's going to be long. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's going to take us a little longer than we'd hoped because there are so many letters. I never dreamed that there would be so many letters because it's not only the inside, it's the outside. Each one of those letters we have to write up and do the parallels and, you know, check everything so, so carefully. So we're talking about a long article here. (laughs) Wow. Well, we we look forward to to the release of it. Assuming that it it does indeed pass peer review, that that actually there is broad agreement, uh, consensus that this this is a find from the period that we're talking about, and it does indeed represent the words and so on. Um, what what for you? How does that shift the way we should think about the Old Testament and what we know of that time period and the the Israel story? Um, just at an academic level, how how does it change that story? Well. It's, it's hard to bifurcate and say just academic, but I'll mm. do my best because the faith implications are huge. Sure. I was a co-author of Zondervan's text last year called Five Views on the Exodus, and I would commend that to your, to your viewers. Um, I wrote chapter one, the biblical date of the Exodus, and um, I wrote about all the archaeological evidence that, in my, from my perspective, synchronized with that biblical date. I talked about Manibal in there. But at that point, we did not have the, the, the tablet. So it's interesting now with the retrospect to look back at what I said. Um, I, I think that the implications are huge. Do we have a, is the Bible a reliable historical document? And that's a huge issue. Um, I talked to someone yesterday who contacted me. He would, had been through Princeton and had been trained in the documentary hypothesis. And uh, he said, I'll have to tell you, I'm rethinking everything, everything I was taught 
at, at Princeton. I got another email from someone from the Middle East um, uh, who was not Christian and just saying, I've been trained in secular scholarship here in Israel. And I just want to tell you that based on your find, I'm rethinking my presuppositions about the reliability of the text. Zertal himself went through that, Justin, back in the 1980s. He was a total secularist. Uh, he lived on a kibbutz and they were communist. I mean, he didn't believe that there was a God, but this, this altar and what he found on Manival profoundly changed him. And so I think now Zertal has been vindicated uh, in, in many respects. And now we all have to grapple with this idea of, is the Bible a reliable historical source? Mm. Finally, I mean, would you say that this is representative generally of the field of archaeology and what it's telling us about the Old Testament? Do, do you find that, you know, you, to, to, to listen to some skeptics, you would think that, you know, every, everything we ever discover simply disproves the Bible at every turn. And that those are often yeah. the stories we do hear about. Um, what, what's your view of what we're actually finding when we dig up the ground around the Middle East and, and what it tells us about the, the Bible? No, I think that there's a, a high degree of consistency between what we find in the material culture and, and what we read in the text. I mean, I've written a book about it, The Trowel and the Truth, that synchronizes these data. Here's, here's one of the challenges. When people are taking a late date for the Exodus, then they're looking for evidence in a different stratum than where the Bible says that it happened. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm taking a biblical date, I'm looking at one stratum and a someone who's taking a late date, secular or not, is not the point. Then they're looking at a different stratum. So when they say there's not evidence that this happened, well, not in the wrong level. Okay, so this is why our chronology is so key to to our analysis. And for you, this is, it does this have a significant bearing on the actual dating of the Exodus itself? You think that this this could not, not only suggest when these documents could have been written, the the biblical documents, but mm -hmm. the Exodus itself is earlier than many people have have assumed. I I think it. It is another piece of evidence in the inductive sort of conclusion that the early date is, is a preferred date. Um, those who are, have a late date, they could still look at this and say this is a LB2 text, but it's from the end of LB2 rather than earlier in LB2. So it's not that this is a slam dunk saying there's no, that this disproves the, the later date, but I do think that it tilts the scale uh, mm. toward the earlier date. Mm. It's been fascinating catching up with you on this. I hope we can do, do a, a real deep dive with, with someone uh, on, on the other side, um, maybe asking uh, better questions than I can. But Scott, thank you so much for some time. All the best as you get down to the, the real work of, you know, putting this through the peer review process. And, and I, I hope that, you know, um, you, it's a really good process for you as you do that. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you for being with us today. Uh, links to more about Scott's work with today's podcast. And next time, we're going to begin a new series with Derwin Gray, former NFL football player and pastor of Transformation Church in South Carolina. We'll be hearing his amazing conversion story and about his new book, How to Heal Our Racial Divide. By the way, don't forget to share this podcast with others and rate and review us wherever you're listening from. It helps others to discover the show. And if you'd like to support the show and find out more about our other podcasts, you can find the website at premierunbelievable.com. 
all the links are with today's show for now thanks for being with us and see you next time you've been listening to unapologetic for more shows resources and our newsletter visit premierunbelievable.com